Before I begin the sermon, though, I just want to share something that I saw as we were worshipping just a moment ago. Um, a dark cage, metal bars, iron bars, perhaps somebody who feels that they're trapped, that they can't get out. And I sense the Lord is saying to you, the door of this cage is already open. And as Fiona was singing the words of the song, that there's no darkness that he can't light up. I sense him saying that for you. There's no darkness that he can't light up. There's no mountain that he can't climb up. There's no wall that he can't break down. Sometimes we need the promises of God, don't we, to walk us through the difficult times. And if that's you today, I sense that is a promise of God for you. But perhaps you're here today and that doesn't speak to you, but you have other promises of God that you have been holding, in some cases for some time. Um, I got convicted this week of one particular promise I'd sort of forgotten about that is six years old. Um, but I've carried promises that are as yet unfulfilled for 20 years. That's the entire time I've been a Christian. But I trust that one day I will be able to say verse 14 of our passage. It's a really precious verse for me. Verse 14 says this, not one word has failed. Not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. That's my hope. I hope that's your hope too, that one day we will see all of the good things that the Lord has promised fulfilled. And that really is where I want to start today, because Joshua is speaking to the people of Israel. He's speaking to them at a point that actually, you know, you wouldn't be, uh, you would be forgiven for, for thinking it comes at the end of the book of Joshua. It surely is the end of the story. Israel is taking the land. Israel has taken the land. It's time for celebration. Joshua finally can be like, we've done it, we've done it. Actually, we haven't. <laughs> at the end point of Joshua is actually more like half time. And so Joshua, picture him, if you will, is like a team coach saying to his team at that half time point, okay, you did great in the first half. You were faithful, you trusted God, you did the things that he told you to do, and he started doing the things that he promised to do for you. So far, you've done really great, but, like any good coach says, it's only half time. There's still everything to play for in the second half. And that really is what Joshua is doing in this passage. He's speaking to Israel and saying, come on team, we've done great so far, we've trusted the Lord, but there is all to play for. Or another way of looking at it, this is the father of his people, particularly so because only he and Caleb from his generation are still alive. So all of the Israelites would have looked to Joshua and Caleb in place really of their parents. He is the father of Israel, rather conveniently, of course, on Father's Day. We can take that image that Joshua is a father to Israel, speaking to them, saying, please, Please continue faithfully, even as you have so far. Now, what makes it particularly poignant is Joshua is, as the Bible puts it, old and full of years, which means that he knows he hasn't got much longer to live. So Joshua is saying to this to the people, just knowing that he is not going to see the outcome. The outcome we read about in Judges 2, verses 10 to 15. It's kind of just as well that Joshua didn't see the outcome. 
But at this point, it's half time. And so he's saying, come on, you've done so well so far. Keep trusting God and you will see his promise to you fulfilled. And that really summarizes in brief what he talks about. In this passage, you heard him present one promise on one condition. And the promise is that God is going to keep leading Israel into the land, the physical land that he has promised them. God is going to take them into the land. It says in uh, verse 5, the Lord your God will push them back before you, speaking about the other nations, and drive them out of your sight so that you can take the physical land. And in verse 3, it says, just as the Lord your God fought for you so far in the first half, so he will continue in the second half. So the promise that Joshua is reminding Israel of is really, really simple. God is going to bring you into the land. God will do this. But not just God will do this, but God will do this. So if you remember the times we've looked at this passage so far, we we remember in particular perhaps the story of Jericho, the city of Jericho being taken by the Israelites. Now, they take it because God promises them the land. This is the first uh, city that they're going to be given. They don't get it by their own hard work. They don't take the land by their own effort. They don't break down that city the way you'd normally expect an army to take a city. Do you remember what they do? They walk around the walls of Jericho. Around the walls of Jericho, go home. Next day, around the walls of Jericho, go home. So on for seven days. And then the walls of Jericho fall. And in this, we see God underlining that it is he who will give them the land. They don't fight in the orthodox way. They are given the land by the Lord. And as it says in verse 3, God fights for them. So we have not just this idea that God will do this, that this is the promise, God will do this, God will take them into the land, but that it is God himself. It is not about their efforts primarily. And so I wonder even for people in this room, whether when you think about the promises that you perhaps are holding, waiting on God to fulfill, whether maybe for some of us we've tried to start helping God. Everyone looks so innocent, like you've never tried to help God. Have you really never tried to help God? I try to help God all the time. I don't tolerate waiting very well. So I think I know I'm going to help God out a bit. And I come up with all these great plans to kind of move him along a bit, to, to let him know that I'm keen and that I want this promise. And God says so often, no, hang on. It's not that you don't get to partner with me. You do get to partner with me, but you do what I tell you to do. I will fight for you, you do what I tell you. Which is, of course, what happened at Jericho. If they had gone gung-ho fighting in Jericho to take take Jericho, they would have lost it. It was a a walled city. But because they did what God told them to do, the walls fell and God gave them the city. So maybe there's a word, first of all, for some of us here today that actually God is saying to you, stop trying to make this thing happen. I get that you are in faith for it. I get that you want it. I get that you're trusting me for it. But what, what if you just let me do it? That may be God's word to some people today. What if you just now rest? As it says 
in Exodus, the Lord will fight for you, you have only to be silent. That was true for Israel when it was coming out of the promised land and it was true uh, uh, coming out of Egypt and it was true for Israel at the other end of the journey as it's coming into the promised land. The message has always been the same. God will do it, but it is God who will do it. And it's the same for you and for me. That's the promise. But I said there was a condition, didn't I? And it's a condition that in some translations of this particular passage is blindingly obvious and in other translations is less clear. If you have a look in verse 8, it says in the NIV really clearly, you must hold fast to the Lord. This is what will guarantee for Israel that they will receive the promise. They have to hold fast to the Lord. Now, in the English Standard Version, they've gone for a translation that means, uh, the translation of the word, uh, in the English, it's clinging. Now, because I was preparing in the English Standard Version, as it happened, I noticed also that clinging shows up in verse 12. In the ESV, it says, you shall not cling to the other nations. That gets a bit lost in the NIV. You don't have this language of holding fast, which was the language you had in the NIV in verse 8. You don't have that same language of holding fast again in verse 12. Even though in the original language, it's the same word. What the author of this text is trying to underline for us is there's a condition. And the condition is this. You've got to cling or hold fast. You've got to cling to the Lord your God, verse 8. And because of that, you must not cling to the other nations. Now that, as I say, gets a bit lost in the New International Version that we read because it's not the same word used in verse 8 and verse 12 in the translation. But in the Hebrew, it's the same word. It's the same idea. You can only cling to either the Lord your God or the other gods. So then I got to thinking, well, that word clinging is really interesting. Let's do a bit more digging and see what is the underlying word in the Hebrew. What does it mean? What does it mean to cling to the Lord your God? Because, I mean, clinging is a great word in English. Nobody clings half-heartedly, do you? You cling for dear life. You hold on so tightly because you're frightened of what will happen if you don't cling. You cling because you love, perhaps. You cling because you desire, but you don't just kind of, you know, half-heartedly wave in the general direction, you cling. So I looked at what it has to mean in the Hebrew, and it's really interesting. You see, this word in the Hebrew is a covenant word. It's a word that is used for marriage. So in Genesis, where it talks about a man and a woman leaving their parents and um, coming together. We, in our old English translations, use the word that they leave their parents and then they cleave. It's this same idea of clinging. It's an idea of bonding, of union, of deep relational commitment. Marriage underlines it well. It's also a word that is used in relation to Ruth and Naomi. When Ruth says to Naomi, I'll go where you go, where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. She uses this language of clinging. She is making a relational commitment to Naomi, but not just to Naomi. She's making that relational commitment to Naomi's people, the Jews, and also to Naomi's God. 
So you can see I started to think, oh, clinging is a really interesting word. This is a word of union. It's a word of close relationship, commitment, marriage, ultimately. And so God's promise that we've just seen to fight on behalf of his people, to give them the land in this passage, is dependent upon the people clinging in a kind of marriage relationship with him. Utter, utter commitment, faithfulness. And that's not surprising because if you've read the prophets in the Old Testament, you see that God, through his prophets, calls the people of Israel his bride and calls himself their husband. That relationship of clinging is foundational to the whole of what it means to be God's people. And so what Joshua is saying to his people is, look, this is how it is. This is how it's always been with God. There is this promise. He's promised to give you the land, but you must cling to him only and not to any other gods. Verse 12, particularly it says, don't intermarry, literally, don't marry people from the other nations. Because if you do, you're effectively also marrying their gods. And you cannot be married to the Lord your God and also to the gods of the nations. Then Joshua says something else. He says in verses 6 and 7 what clinging looks like. In verses 6 and 7 is where he talks about the book of the law. Now, literally, the book of the law means the first five books that are in our Old Testament. They're the first five books. This is book number six, so it's all the books beforehand. For the Israelites, this was their law. This was their Torah. It was, if you like, their covenant document. In the same way that in a marriage ceremony, husband and wife make vows to one another, that's basically what those first five books are. It is the document that underpins the relationship between God and Israel. And so Joshua says the thing that you need to do is to read this covenant, to remind yourself what are the promises that God has given you, and then to remind yourself also what promises you've made to him. What does clinging to the Lord your God only look like? So that, in really simple terms, is what this passage is about. One promise on one condition. And the promise here is predominantly about the land, as you can see from the passage, but also the fuller picture of promises in the book of the law. Just to underline the point, Joshua then says in verses 13 and 15 and 16, by the way, in case you haven't got it, that you only get this promise if you cling to the Lord. He then says what happens if you don't cling to the Lord. In verses 15 and 16, he says, if you don't stay married to the Lord only, then unsurprisingly, since he's your husband, Israel, his great anger will be against you in the same way that a man who was spurned by his wife would be angry, jealous, because of love. And the verses go on to say that as a result, God will then no longer fight for you, Israel. If you don't cling to God, if you don't fulfill your side of the covenant, God will no longer fight for you. If you choose to put your allegiance with another husband, other gods, God will no longer fight for you. And those gods will be like a thorn in your side. Now, it's quite a half-time talk, isn't it? You think you've done well in the first half of the game and then you get a, a pep talk like that. 
Even more so, I think, if you think of Joshua as the father to his people. He is so desperate that his people would continue in what they've already known. That they would continue in faithfulness towards God and that they would see all of his promises come to pass. Now, it strikes me that you and I might find ourselves in a similar half-time place. You may be, as I am, holding promises that are as yet unfulfilled. Centrally, the promise that all of us who are Christians here are holding that is as yet unfulfilled is the promise, not that we will receive a physical land, that was the promise given to Israel, but that we will receive a spiritual home. You and I are waiting in hope until the day that Jesus returns and gathers his people to himself and takes us to be with him in a place that the Bible calls heaven. And the Bible says our citizenship is in heaven. So Unlike Israel, we don't have a physical land that we're being promised, but we do have a spiritual home that we're being promised, and we are waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. As I said when I began earlier, there may be other promises that you're carrying too, things that you're waiting for God to give you. For me, in some cases, there's a couple of things, big things, that I've been waiting for for 20 years. And let me tell you, praying consistently for 20 years for things like that is hard going. But I am still trusting God. I'm trusting that at the end of my life, I will be able to say not one word of all the good things that he's promised concerning me have failed to come to pass. So maybe you're here and you're holding promises that you're still waiting for. And maybe today God is saying to you, as he said to Israel, I'm going to do it. Don't you be trying to help me. Don't you be trying to stir things up or move things along or kind of make it happen a bit sooner than I'm planning to make it happen. Just trust me. I'm going to do it. Maybe that's what God is saying to you today. But the other thing he might be saying to you is don't forget, if you want to receive the promise, you have to cling to me. The Bible, as I said, calls Israel... um, the relationship between Israel and God, a marriage relationship. And the Bible actually does the same thing with the church. Together, we, corporately, are the bride of Christ. We, if we are Christian, have put our trust in Jesus. We've committed to him. We've made covenant with God in Christ. We cling to God. And so the challenge for us is actually very similar as it is for Israel. Cling to him and him only. Now, our gods are not like the gods of the nations surrounding Israel. They all had names, and they were into all kinds of things, these gods. I mean, there was horrific, horrific things going on, including child sacrifice. I mean, we look at that, and we think it's easy, surely, to put all of that down to a totally different time and a totally different culture, and we don't have other gods in this world. You know, it's just, we'll cling to Jesus, and it's fine. But I wonder... I wonder whether actually there are other gods that draw my heart away, that draw your heart away. Sometimes I'm going to tell you I think that I want success in life. The thing is, success is one of these other gods. It's not a bad thing in itself, but it will have a tendency to pull me away from Jesus. 
I want to cling to Jesus and Jesus only. If he brings success, whatever that looks like, then great, nice. But I don't want to go chasing after that. But it draws my heart sometimes. Or maybe for you, it's about money. Maybe all you want to do is earn enough money to do X. And then when you've done X, perhaps you'd like to earn a bit more money to do Y. And so the thing goes, doesn't it? That there's never quite enough money to do what it is we want. And a thing that is not necessarily bad in itself becomes a God. Because we get moved more and more and more in this direction. And we begin clinging to money instead of to Jesus only. Or maybe it's a relationship. Maybe there's a relationship with a significant other that you have, or maybe that you don't have but you long for, and you spend all your energy chasing after that significant relationship, and it starts to become a God, and it, it pulls you away from clinging to Jesus only. The thing is, that the condition of his promises hasn't changed. It hasn't changed whether it's Israel or whether it's us. We are called to cling to Jesus only. And so when we go after these other gods, we begin to lose who we are. And we begin to communicate to God that our covenant relationship with him doesn't matter. And that we're not that bothered about the promises anyway. It's a hard, challenging message, potentially. This idea of being called to cling to God to the exclusion of everything else. But I focus on it because of the reason for clinging. We cling because he's worth it. We cling because of all the promises that he has for us. We cling because of the loving future he has for us. And so when I ask you in just a moment to speak to the Lord about clinging, please understand I'm doing it from that place, that what he has for us, the good things, far outweigh the challenges of clinging. So I'm going to ask you now to take one minute to speak to the Lord in your heart, however that works for you. And just say to him, Lord, am I clinging to you as much as you want me to be? Or are there areas in my life where I'm being a bit sort of split, so I'm trying to cling to Jesus and I'm also trying to cling to something else down here? And I'm going to give you just a moment of silence for that and then I'll pray. Jesus, even as we've taken a moment to have the honest conversation with you about whether we're clinging to you wholeheartedly, I pray for each one now that you will give us a vision 
of how much you love us, why it is that you want us to cling to you, how it is for our ultimate good. Would you give each one of us, even now in this moment, just a small sense of how deep, how overpowering your love for us is, how much you long to be with us, to be present to us. And actually how much Jesus is in heaven longing for the day that he can come to gather his bride. And Lord, as you give us that assurance, would you then give us the strength, we pray, to cling to you only. We pray all these things in your name, Lord. Amen.